0: Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. First of all, I'd like to just thank Pastor Brad for giving me the opportunity to once again stand before you and share the good news of Jesus Christ, especially on a day like today, which is Epiphany, which which is just one of those special days in the church that emphasizes so much who Jesus is, what Jesus does, how Jesus came, and uh, how he has touched each of us in our hearts and in our minds. Are you familiar with the five love languages? Have you ever have you heard of this? There was a psychologist by the name of Gary Chapman who came up with this idea that there were really five love languages. The, the five love languages, first of all, are words of affirmation. That's one. You know, speaking words that uh, compliment, it's a way of showing love. The second is time that's spent with people, that's another measure of, of commitment or love. The third is giving gifts. The fourth is acts of service that are done for others. And the final love language that he mentions is that of touch. Now, I'm not sure Well by by the way, these love languages are not real languages, they are kinds of behaviors that we engage in, first of all, in order to express our own emotion and affection for others, but we'll have a tendency toward one being more dominant for ourselves. And as a result, we not only try to express affection by uh, by that language. We also expect others to show their love to us by that same language. Well, I'm not sure what my own love language is, but I know what my wife's love language is. (laughs) My wife's love language is giving gifts. She loves to give gifts. She enjoys giving gifts. She goes out of her way to give gifts and planning for giving of gifts. It's, well, let me just give you this example. For Advent, what she does, she creates uh, an Advent calendar sequence for each of the families, each of the grandkid families, and for our own, in which there is every day a little poem. And then there is either a gift or an activity or a prize or a treat or something every day along leading up to Christmas. Jenny just loves to give gifts. Now, as I mentioned, I don't really understand what my own love language is, but I know what it's not. It's not giving gifts. <laughs> gifts scare me. Gifts cause an enormous amount of anxiety for me. I wonder, is, is this the right gift to give to this individual? Did it cost too much or did it cost too little? Was it the right color or not? Is my gift going to be the first item that gets re-gifted at the <laughs> first opportunity? I mean, gift-giving causes me a great amount of anxiety. Now, if this is the case, which uh, sad to say I believe it is, you can realize that there's ample opportunity for miscommunication in our household (laughs) as Jenny looks for validation of affection by gifts and all I am giving are acts of service, which tends to be my predominant love language. Yeah. Don't take me to the store. Just let me do the ironing and we'll be just fine. (laughs) Well, it is a validation of our commitment to one another that this miscommunication has not caused any great difficulties because we just spent uh, a celebration of our 45th wedding anniversary just a few days ago. Love languages. Do you realize that Epiphany is a celebration of God's love language? God's love language for us and His love language really is giving gifts because it is at Epiphany that He gives us the greatest gift possible. Our Savior Jesus Christ, His own beloved Son. Now it's not that God doesn't use the other gifts or the other love languages that are there. Words of affirmation are constantly there for us in Scripture. Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Time is with us always with God. And uh, acts of service? Well, the whole life of Jesus' ministry is one constant act of service being done on our behalf. But if we want to know the heart of God, if we want to know the love of God, it's when he gives us his own Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. Now, what's interesting about Epiphany is that we have this marvelous account of the wise men coming from the east in order to worship the newborn king. And that account in itself demonstrates to us an important aspect of this love language of God. First of all, it helps us understand his love language. But then as we look at the the account, we're going to this morning consider how this event sounded to the very first hearers of Matthew, or the first readers of Matthew. What did this sound like to them when they heard about these wise men coming from the East? And then we'll wrap things up by rejoicing in the gift that God gives to us through His love language, Jesus Christ our Savior. Well, The wise men are coming from the east, and they're expecting to find a newborn king to worship, but what they don't realize until they get there is that they're dealing with two kings. They've got King Herod and King Jesus, and we could not find two kings that were more different from each other than King Herod and King Jesus. We know many things about King Herod from history, not from just the scriptures, but from history itself. We know that in 40 BCE, he was declared king by the Roman Senate and installed as the ruler in Judea. We know that he was a tremendously capable administrator. He was also a fantastic builder. He is the one who decided to remodel and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem into the magnificent structure it was until it was destroyed in 70 AD. He's the one who built the magnificent harbor at Caesarea Maritima on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea and used, in order to accomplish this, a never-before-done technique. of. Uh, they found a type of concrete that hardens underwater. Who knew? But they did. He built palaces. He built Masada. He built the Herodium where uh, archaeologists believe that he's buried. So there were many wonderful things about King Herod. But unfortunately, King Herod was also extremely jealous. He was power hungry and he was paranoid. How paranoid was he? Well, during his reign, he actually had his wife executed because he thought she was creating a, an uprising against him. And he also had two of his own sons put to death because he thought they were part of a conspiracy <laughs> against him. Yes, that's King Herod. So it's into this snake pit that the, the wise men come with their question. Now perhaps we would see why the scriptures tell us that Herod and all Jerusalem was troubled by their question. If you want to find a way to poke somebody who's paranoid into another fit of paranoia, well why not tell them that you've come to worship the king but it's not him, the newborn king. So the rest of Jerusalem is wondering okay who's gonna get it next because of this question having been asked. They're so different, these two kings. King Herod, world-renowned. King Jesus, unknown even in the village where he's born. King Herod, powerful. King Jesus couldn't even get a room in the, whole, in the village where he was born. King Herod, he has the resources of the Roman Empire at his disposal. King Jesus, he needs protection at every turn of the story. King Herod, he builds palaces. King Jesus, well, at least he gets out of the stable and moves to a house before the wise men arrive You know, this is what Luther would call the theology of the cross. The way that God tends to work through weakness in order to do the most powerful things in our lives. It is the theology of the cross. Paul wrote this, We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. But those wise men, as they arrive in Jerusalem, they have to deal with the seen things and the seen things that they have, well, that's King Herod. And no doubt he was interested in who these people were. He wanted to know more about them. He probably asked where they were from. Well, there's several, the scriptures don't tell us. Most people believe that they were from Persia, modern day Iran and Iraq in that area. But there's a strong argument that would say no, they're really from the southern part of Saudi Arabia and that's because of the gifts that they bring. Frankincense and myrrh were products of that southern Saudi Arabia region, not of Persia and Iran. And the gold, the major source of gold in that part of the world at that time was actually in Sudan, more in the area of Africa. So there is an argument that maybe they came from those areas rather than from Persia. Nevertheless, when they would have gotten to Jerusalem, they would have come from the east because they'd have come up on the other side of the Dead Sea and then crossed over Jericho and then come up the hills up into Jerusalem. What about that star that leads them? Well, many have tried to figure out just what that star was. Was this some astronomical astronomical phenomenon that was observable and was interpreted then to be something to do with Judea? Did it have something to do with the Zodiac? How was it that they knew this that they could follow it? Rather than being an astronomical phenomenon, my own take on it, and again, Scripture doesn't tell us specifically, is that it was some kind of supernatural illumination source, particularly when the Bible tells us when it comes over the house, that there must have been something very miraculous about that light. But the men, the wise men, come. Now this, this is a story that you, you've heard so often, and you know so many things about. But you also, even as even as our uh, children's message was pointing out, some of these things really aren't from Scripture. They're more from tradition. We suspect that they weren't kings, really that they were, uh, they were known as wise men. It doesn't give us the number, we simply assume because there were three gifts that there were three wise men. Their names, Melchior, Balthazar, and Gaspar, that's, that's also simply coming out of tradition. So it's possible that we have heard this account so frequently and so often that we, uh, we miss how it might have sounded to those who heard this account for the first time. Whether they were reading Matthew or hearing it read to them, how did this sound to them? Well, the place to start is with the name of these individuals themselves. In the original language, it's Magoi. And so we translate that wise men, but it really is more of magicians. You see, in the book of Daniel, it was the Magoi against whom Daniel contends in the Chaldean exile of of the people of Israel. So they're off there in this foreign country where there's a group of magicians who are fighting against or contending with Daniel. There's some other places in the New Testament where this word also shows up. It shows up in Acts chapter 8. There's a fellow by the name of Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8 who seeing the disciples giving the Holy Spirit attempts to buy the Holy Spirit from uh, the the disciples in order to have that same kind of power. Well, you you know, the reaction of Peter and the others to this is, is, well, it's another get behind me Satan story. But his name was Simon Magus or Magoi. So he's the same kind of magician. And then in, in Acts chapter 13, there's another fellow. This time it's Paul and Barnabas that encounter a Magoi by the name of Elimus. So when, when those first hearers heard the story, and there are these Magoi that are coming, what were they to think? Well, what they knew of the Magoi was that they were not worshipers of the God of Israel. In fact, in the book of Daniel, they are part of the oppressors of the people of Israel. In fact, one commentator said they were the ones in league with supernatural powers opposed to God. We would know they would be Gentiles, and we know that there's this hostility between Jews and Gentiles. They were obviously then pagans. And their own sources of wisdom would have been suspect from the beginning. They were so unfamiliar with scripture, the Jewish scriptures, that they didn't know where to look. That's why they asked the question in Jerusalem, where is he born? And they're also so naive that they trust Herod. And if it wasn't for the dream that comes to them after they've worshipped the Christ child they would have betrayed the baby into the hands of the paranoid king. So when we hear the story, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot out of the ordinary in it. They're the wise men. But for those who heard it for the first time, in their own context, this was a shock. That's why when when we begin the account, it says, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Behold. Look at this. We weren't expecting this. There's wise men from the east. There's pagans from Persia that are even invited to worship this Jesus. And doesn't that get us back to the very heart of what Epiphany is all about? The love language of God for his creation, for his human beings, and for all his human beings. Not just one group, but for all groups. Not for just one race, but for all races. Not just for one set of peoples, but for all sets of peoples, Jesus comes. This is where we see the heart of God for us. It's this gift. It's this gift of forgiveness for all. Because all have fallen short and all need forgiveness. And it comes to everyone. And so then what does Epiphany mean for each one of us? It means that no matter who our parents were or where we have come from or even even the kinds of sins that we have committed this gift is for us and that at our Christmas we get to open the gift and we get to receive the baby and we know what this baby has come to do for us and that we too have the forgiveness of sins. So that along along with the others who hear it for the first time, we ought to say, behold, look at this. Even us, even we, are called and invited to receive the gift of the Christ child. He's ours. Yes, the Holy Spirit calls us to repentance, the Holy Spirit gives us faith, and in that faith, we have the Christ child. So it's appropriate then on Epiphany that we're here to worship him, isn't it? Did you bring your gold? Have you got your frankincense with you? Is it already? Probably not. May, may, well, the offering is coming up. There is a possibility for the gold part, but... Uh, I just have to share this, too, because it's so interesting about about the wise men. You know, there's another place in history where the wise men show up. It's 600 years later, and this is the story about it. Now, um, the church of the, well, let's start this way. In the year 614 A.D., the Byzantine Empire controls Palestine. But they're at war with the Persian Empire, and the Persian Empire is winning. They've swept into Palestine, and part of their program is to destroy all the Christian churches that they can find, which they're doing very, very well. They get to Jerusalem, and they destroy the Christian churches there. They get to Bethlehem, the outside region around, and they're about to destroy the Church of the Holy Nativity in Bethlehem, which had been built about 350 to 400 AD. But when they come inside, they see on the wall in the among, among the mosaics, the wise men. And they're dressed as Persians. They assume this is the building for us. And so they did not destroy it. So to this day, because of the mosaic of the wise men in the Church of the Holy Nativity, That is the oldest church structure in all of Judea to this day. I was there in September. And, you know, when anybody goes to Israel, this is what happens. For the next X-Men number of years, they're going to tell stories about their trip to Israel until all their friends and relatives say, Enough already! We've heard all that! Stop it! But I'm not there yet. The other interesting thing about the church, uh, that church of the Holy Nativity, is that in the 1700s, the doorway was lowered to three and a half feet tall. And the reason this was in the 1700s, the reason they did that was to, to make sure that no horses or oxen or or any other animals pulling carts could get in, because apparently this was a trouble. This was a problem they were having. Was animals getting in so now when you visit the Church of the Holy Nativity you actually have to get down and crawl in like this and then stand up into this ancient ancient structure but in order to go into that church you have to bow interesting when the wise men arrived what did they do they worshipped the infant Jesus they bowed before him and gave him their gifts what could be more fitting for that to take place well, this is, this is God's love language. It's his gift. It's his son, Jesus Christ. And how fitting it is for us this day to join together in the worship of that Savior who's come to bring us all of God's good and gracious gifts. To him goes all praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.